Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's 480 BC. The Persian terror, King Xerxes, is leading thousands of battle-hardened troops on an invasion of Greece. Standing in his way is King Leonidas and his 300 Spartan warriors, all knowing they will leave their bones in this place. But determined to hold out as long as possible to give the Greeks the time they need to prepare a proper defence. It was one of the classic battles of the ancient world and... Hang on, this is the Australian Military History Podcast. Why am I waffling on about some ancient battle which occurred some two and a half thousand years before an Australian army even existed? What has the Battle of Thermopylae got to do with Australia? Well, dear listener, sit back, relax, kick off your thongs, grab a beverage, and I'll tell you all you need to know about that other Battle of Thermopylae. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. Guess what? The Australian Military History Podcast is officially one year old. That's 12 months even. It seems like only yesterday it was but a twinkle in my eye, a thought bubble, a plea from my long-suffering wife to go and do something useful to get out from under her feet. I never would have believed it would work out as well as it has. Compared to the plethora of history podcasts in the world, Australian military history is quite a niche little area. But in the last 12 months, we've had a grand total of 11,984 downloads, growing at a rate of roughly 200 extra downloads each month. I expected that we may have some interest within Australia and possibly New Zealand, but I've been totally blown away by how many people outside of Australia are also tuning in. We have a rating of 4.8 out of 5 on iTunes and I've had many positive comments which keeps me going during those times when I think I'm losing my mind trying to reconcile conflicting accounts. We cranked over 700 followers on Instagram with some very engaged contributors. I'm looking at you, the Sinclair Dude and Ross Cable in particular. And on Facebook, Mike O'Neill, the Paterfamilias, Casey O'Brien Sloan, Graham Hay, Adam Bloom from the True Blue History Podcast and Safur Raman Mabab Ali, a couple of the regulars, among many others. My mind is well and truly boggled beyond all comprehension. I thank each and every one of you who have taken the time out of your lives to tune in and listen to me rambling on every three weeks. I really do appreciate it. And speaking of rambling on, I'd better get on with today's rambling. In October 1940, Italian forces launched an invasion of Greece, kicking off the Greco-Italian War. The Greeks initially repulsed the Italian push and launched their own counter-attack in March 1941. As happened on a number of occasions throughout the wider war in the Mediterranean, where the Italians failed, Germany came to lend a helping hand. The attack named Operation Marita began on the 6th of April 1941, where German troops invaded Greece from Bulgaria. The big problem for the Greeks was that they were mostly hanging out on the border of Albania, as that was where the Italians had attacked from. This obviously put the Greeks into a sticky situation, as they were essentially being attacked in the rear. If they pulled back to face the Germans, then the Italians would be given a free kick to come in from behind. The Greeks had little choice but to fall back and send out a call for help. A declaration from 1939 obliged Britain to provide support to Greece, 
Initially, British support came in the form of some RAF squadrons and troops deployed to the island of Crete. This freed up the Cretan troops to be transferred to the mainland. British ground forces, including Australians and New Zealanders, eventually moved onto the mainland and headed north to meet the Germans. Churchill had other reasons to help Greece apart from the 1939 declaration. The Battle of Britain had finally been won by the end of October 1940. Although the threat of invasion had lessened, it still hadn't disappeared. He was keen to open up a Balkan front across Yugoslavia, Greece and Turkey. Anything which could tie up German troops anywhere other than the French coast was a welcome option. By supporting the Greek defence, the immediate security concerns in Britain could be alleviated somewhat. That is a very brief and not in-depth background to the whole shebang. Obviously the political and military manoeuvring were much more complicated and there were many other events happening in the other areas of Europe which were taken into consideration prior to any of the combatants taking up arms in Greece. But for the purposes of setting the scene for Australian involvement in Greece, that'll do the job. I'll be covering the Battle of Crete in a later episode and will devote more time to the explanation of the entire Greek campaign in that episode. The Battle for Greece did not go well for the Allies. The German-Italian onslaught broke through the Metaxas line and destroyed Greek resistance in Macedonia. They pressed on to Skopje, where they pushed aside the Greek defenders early on the 10th of April. Shortly after their breakthrough at Skopje, Axis troops first encountered the British and Commonwealth forces at Vevi. That village fell the following day, but the advance was held up briefly at the Clidi Pass to the south. After a quick reconnaissance, the SS divisions renewed their attack, and after a fierce but short battle, they broke through and reached Kazani by the 14th of April. By mid-April, General Wilson, in overall command of the Greek campaign, made the decision to evacuate Greece, and although the official order was not given until the 23rd of April, General Freyberg of New Zealand and Blamey of Australia already had their evacuation plans well in place and troops were beginning to move to their allotted embarkation points. A quick digression if I may. Bernard Freyberg. As this series is focused mainly on Australian history and personalities, I probably won't devote an episode to Bernard, but he certainly deserves a mention in dispatches before we go much further. And he will pop up from time to time in future episodes, fighting alongside Australian forces, so I'll give a bit of an insight to the great man here. On 25th of April 1915, as the Anzacs were landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula, he was part of the English forces also involved in the operation. Freyberg's Hood Battalion was to launch a diversionary landing on the Asian side of the Dardanelles Strait. Rather than risk the lives of his men in an attack that was never designed to achieve anything, Freyberg decided to launch a one-man invasion. From his ship bobbing about in the sea, he swam ashore, near froze to death, and ran around on the beach lighting fires and generally being conspicuous to the Turkish defenders. Having created his diversion, he bid the Turks adieu and swam back to his ship. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his efforts. The following year, while fighting in the Battle of the Somme, he went one further and was awarded the Victoria Cross. After attacking German positions, he gathered his remaining men and some from other units and led them against the second objective. In the attempt, he was wounded twice. Never one to let a couple of extra holes slow him down, he held on to his command during the day and the following night. With reinforcements, he attacked again, seizing a village and taking 500 prisoners. He received another couple of wounds, the final one being serious enough for him to be taken out of the line, but not until he had issued further orders and organised the defence of the positions gained. So, all in all, not a bad bloke to have on your side. And back to the narrative. To buy time for the bulk of the forces to reach their embarkation area, Brigadier Herring of the 2nd Field Regiment ordered two guns, under the overall command of Lieutenant Anderson, to set themselves up on the forward slope of an escarpment overlooking a demolished bridge on the Spurkius River. 
On the other side of the river, German forces were gathering in a small village just out of range of the Australian guns. At around 6pm, a convoy carrying infantry troops was seen heading down the road towards the river. As they came into range, the two Australian guns opened up and after firing only three rounds, they hit the lead vehicle. Somewhat surprised at being fired upon when they weren't expecting it, the remainder of the convoy turned around and hightailed it back to the village to give a bit more thought as to how they were going to handle this. The following morning, they opened up on the Australians with their medium guns, which had a superior range to the Australians. After a brief period, a convoy again attempted to make its way down the road and Anderson's men opened up again. Unfortunately, this time the German observers were ready for them and managed to locate the rough area they inhabited and started directing German shells with a bit more accuracy. Before long, they managed to lob a shell onto a truck holding smoke shells and the entire area was covered in smoke. Another shell hit a dump of high explosive shells and set off a small scrub fire. With smoke covering the Australian position, their view of the Germans was obscured. Also, one of the guns was out of action due to hydraulic failure. The Germans took advantage of the smoke and by 1pm they had managed to get about 20 truckloads of infantry to the base of the escarpment, under the trajectory of the remaining gun. So what was Lieutenant Anderson to do? Withdraw and leave the Germans to it? Not a chance. He ordered his men to raise the tail of the gun carriage to make it point down the hill. Packing in a smaller charge to avoid flipping the gun over, he managed to pour another 50 shells into the gathering troops. Their action brought the wrath of the German artillery down onto them and soon the gun was damaged and out of action. Surely now was the time to get up and bugger off. Nah. They managed to get the other gun back into action and get off a few more rounds. However, by now the German artillery well and truly had their bearings and brought down ferocious fire on the defenders. Soon six men were killed and another four wounded, one fatally, and there was nothing more they could do. Anderson and Gunner Brown, a tram conductor from Kew, disabled the gun, took the ID tags and pay books off the dead and headed south with their wounded. Anderson's little defence held up the German advance by more than 24 precious hours. The defenders then fell back on the Thermopylae Pass. Responsibility for the defence was given to Brigadier Barraclough and his New Zealand 6th Brigade. Barraclough positioned his 25th and 24th Battalions in the forward positions with the 26th in the rear. During the night of the 22nd of April, the 5th Brigade patrols pulled back through the 6th Brigade position. However, on the following day, a report was received that the enemy troops had landed on Evia, the second largest of the Greek islands, separated from the mainland only by a narrow strait. Reconnaissance aircraft saw no movement on the island, but if there was a large German body on the island, then things would be even more difficult for the rear guard. Freiburg was ordered to assist the 1st Rangers at Calchas and allow the bulk of the 6th Brigade to withdraw, leaving a rear guard to hold the area around Tatoi. As the Kiwi 6th Brigade were withdrawing, the Australian 19th Brigade withdrew to its positions at Bralos, setting up a rear guard of two companies with a perfect view over the Lamia Plains. General Wilson was growing increasingly nervous at the prospect of the Germans cutting across his line of retreat at the Delphi Pass. Late in the afternoon of the 23rd, a report reached Blamey's headquarters that hundreds of German vehicles had been seen leaving Delphi and Wilson ordered Blamey to demolish the road. Blamey subsequently ordered Brigadier Steele to inflict sufficient damage to the road that the German column would be held up for 24 hours, even if the area was left undefended. Steele took a troop of his sappers and destroyed bridges along the route as well as blowing up culverts so that the rubble would cut the roads. A detachment from the 2nd 5th Battalion was then positioned to cover the demolitions. 
With the various rearguards in place, the bulk of the Allied forces continued to make their way south to the embarkation points during the night of the 23rd, 24th of April, and the King of Greece announced he was transferring his government to Crete. The Anzac Corps headquarters closed down at midnight, and Blamey reported to General Wilson. Blamey was ordered to embark on a flying boat to Alexandria the next morning, where he was to advise Admiral Cunningham of the situation and urge the Admiral to hasten all available shipping to the evacuation. Upon his return, Blamey was greeted with the news that as of the 23rd of April, he was appointed Deputy Commander, under General Wavell, of the Western Desert Command. How lovely for him. Meanwhile, back in the war, things were heating up. By the early afternoon of the 24th of April, the German push to Athens commenced in earnest. Having received orders for his own embarkation, Freyberg politely refused. He later wrote, quote, I cabled back to GHQ Athens and told them I was being attacked by tanks, fighting a battle on a two-brigade front, and asked who was to command the New Zealand troops if I left. I naturally went on with the battle. After that, I never received an order as to my disposal. End quote. It was a calmness in the midst of confusion that he would again show in Crete. But again, more on that in a future episode. By this stage, there were still three Australian, three New Zealand and one British brigade still in Greece. The bulk of the force was to embark during the night of the 24th and into the 25th of April. But with the Germans pushing hard, it was going to be a desperate fight against the clock. Much would ride on the fighting of the rear guards. With the New Zealanders in their positions in Molos and the Australians at Bralos, the scene was set. A gap existed between the two forces, which could not be covered by fire from either position, but it was determined that the Germans were unlikely to advance from that direction. The ground to the north of the New Zealanders was dry and compact, and it was clear that any major tank advance would come from that direction. The majority of artillery support was positioned to provide the best possible firepower on that front. The Germans made their move shortly after 2pm on the 24th of April. They sent two tanks to cross the ground in front of the New Zealand 25th Battalion, but they were soon knocked out by long-range artillery, and so the German command decided that sending more tanks that way without infantry support was a bad idea. Another four tanks were sent forward along with some infantry troops, and they were subsequently engaged by the 25th Battalion. A short, sharp fight developed, but the Germans were pushed back. The main assault was made at 3pm. A group of tanks, followed by truckloads of infantry, were sent forward and despite heavy artillery and rifle fire, they managed to get close to the Kiwis. The NZers were able to push the initial assault back, but a larger thrust shortly after pushed the Germans into the New Zealand positions. The heavy fire from the supporting artillery did much damage to the German tanks. However, this turned out to be a mixed blessing. With burning hulks before them and behind them, the tanks were susceptible to further hits from the artillery, but those same hulks and the smoke obscured the remaining tanks from the infantry in the hills. These tanks turned their fire onto the 25th Battalion, which suffered heavy casualties. By nightfall, burning German tanks stretched back six miles, but they had succeeded in punching through to the right flank of the 25th. A penetration behind the 25th was cause for concern, and so a force of two carrier platoons was sent to meet it, and things were reasonably stable for the time being. The plan which the rear guard had been working on was that the artillery ammunition trucks would drive forward to load the troops and pull back when night fell but for much of the afternoon it appeared they would not be available. This gave Freyberg another problem to ponder while trying to hold off the German attack. It was decided that when the time came, those men not able to find motorised transport would simply have to march back. With this knowledge, the men held firm and stayed in position while the two opposing artillery forces fought out their own private duel. Fortunately, shortly after 9pm, 
The missing trucks arrived and the New Zealand forces were able to begin thinning out their line and by midnight the Molos position was safely evacuated. That particular column arrived in Athens at midday on the 25th of April. Despite the knowledge of what awaited them after the Allied armies had left, the people of Athens rushed to greet and cheer the battered forces. Freyberg, always empathetic, stated, quote, They appeared heartbroken that our efforts to help them had brought disaster upon our force. End quote. While the New Zealanders were fighting their action at Molos, the Australians were preparing their part in the rearguard action. The 19th Brigade moved into their positions during the morning of the 24th of April. It was here that Brigadier Vasey is said to have stated, quote, Here we are, and here we bloody well stay. End quote. Nice. Direct. No room for misinterpretation. Just the kind of orders that your average digger likes. But you can imagine what it must have been like for the diggers who were receiving that order. The first thing that will come into my mind is, great, my chances of dying in the next few hours has just increased. But you'd have to think that there was also some degree of pride. After all, the success of the evacuation is very much in yours and your mate's hands. They are relying on you. I suppose if you have to go out, there are worse ways than going out fighting and giving everyone else a chance to escape. First contact was made with the enemy at around 11.30am when machine gunners of the 2nd 1st Machine Gun Battalion opened fire on the advanced enemy infantry. Intermittent firing and small engagements continued throughout the day until 4.50pm when the Germans started lobbing a heap of mortars on the left of the 2nd 11th Battalion, killing or wounding the commander, all section leaders and eight men of one platoon. By 5.40pm, with German fire increasing, the forward posts were withdrawn back to the main company position. At 6pm, German infantry were spotted at the village of Gravia to the southwest of Bralos. A detachment of the 2nd 1st Battalion engaged this force and held up their advance until dusk. At the same time as the Germans were spotted at Gravia, a determined push went in against the 2nd 11th position near Bralos. The intensity of this attack convinced Vasey that the position was unlikely to hold out until the planned withdrawal time. Reluctant to fall back too soon and jeopardise the evacuation, he brought the withdrawal of his 2nd 1st and 2nd 4th Battalions forward by only half an hour. Major Sandover and a handful of his men from the 2nd 11th Battalion were helpfully advised that they were only required to stand firm until 9pm, not 9.30 as originally planned. To strengthen his position, Sandover withdrew the 2nd 11th and a detachment from the 2nd 8th into a perimeter around the village of Bralos. It was a strong position, but vulnerable to flank attacks. Fortunately for the rear guard, the Germans seemed to be tiring after a hard day of fighting and no serious attempts were made to overwhelm the position. An account from the German 55th Motor Battalion stated that during the day of the 24th, quote, it seemed impossible to get out of the zone of fire and advance. Any movement, even by individual men, was seen by the enemy and engaged at once with heavy machine gun fire. We lost one killed and several wounded. It took several hours for the troops to approach the enemy and reach the northern slopes of the heights. End quote. It would seem that the German command had decided to rest their troops and rejoin the fight on the following day. But on the following day, the Australians had gone. The forward companies began falling back by 9pm. The guns had been withdrawn half an hour earlier. In order to safely remove the guns, a track had been pushed through to them with the engineers using only basic hand tools and explosives. With the guns withdrawn, the engineers then destroyed the track which they had just been labouring on for the last few hours. Such is war, I suppose. Lieutenant McRobbie had been given command of Sandow's right flank during the day. Having now been ordered to retire, he waited until his last platoon was leaving his position. During the move, Corporal Brand was seriously wounded. Despite the risk, 
McRobbie and the platoon returned to their positions and held on for a further ten minutes to ensure that Brand was able to be safely evacuated. At 10.15pm, the last of the trucks were leaving Brolos and the rear guard had successfully completed its mission. As they made their way south, engineers destroyed the roads, further delaying any German thrust and the evacuation of Greece was successfully completed. The Greek campaign was a heavy defeat for the Allies. It probably needed to be fought, but never had any real chance of success. But in many defeats, there are actions which shine above. Anderson's defence at Spurkios, Freyberg's refusal to leave while he was still needed, and the combined efforts of the Kiwis and Australians at Molos and Bralos all combined to ensure that many thousands of troops managed to get away. The defenders may not have left their bones at Thermopylae like Leonidas and his famed 300 men, but I reckon the king would have looked favourably at these warriors from the other side of the world, fighting on his hallowed ground. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under amhpodcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.